and welcome to Checked Out. We're broadcasting from Euclid Public Library in beautiful Euclid, Ohio. I'm Casey Armstrong, Director of the Library. I'm Jean Robinson, Interim Marketing Manager, sitting in for Mike Stein. We talk about our favorite books, movies, and events with our favorite people in our favorite community. Each podcast features a theme. Today, we are talking about reproductive rights. Our special guest is Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development and Judge Ben C. Green, Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Welcome to Checked Out. Thank you so much. Now, the Supreme Court's landmark decision to end the constitutional right to abortion two months ago marked the start of a new era and it generated a lot of confusion as to what is legal and not legal anymore. So let's start at the beginning. For those who may not fully understand the Supreme Court ruling, what exactly does it say? Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court in this case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was actually considering whether a particular law was constitutional or not. So the the case came up out of Mississippi because Mississippi had passed a law banning abortion after 15 weeks. And uh, when the, the case made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court had to decide whether that law was constitutional. And um, in the process, it also had to decide whether or not uh, the, of course, landmark case Roe v. Wade um, remained good law. And the Supreme Court ultimately decided to overrule Roe v. Wade, which was the 1973 case protecting the right uh, to abortion and to terminate a pregnancy. And so what that ultimately meant was that the decision about what law to have on abortion, whether to allow abortion, whether to ban it, whether to allow it with restrictions or anything in between was up to every state to decide. And that the federal constitution, the U.S. Constitution, doesn't limit states ability to do that anymore. I'm so glad that you narrow it down to the fact that now it's up to the states to make these decisions. So what does this mean specifically for women and men? living in Ohio. Is abortion banned? So, yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad you sort of um, emphasized that that point about it being up to each state, because, you know, the Dobbs decision did not say that abortion is automatically illegal everywhere or anything like that. Right. So in some states, they still have the same laws they had before the Dobbs decision. You know, states could pass even more, you know, broader more protective of abortion laws if they want to. But in Ohio, what happened was that there had been a law passed in 2019 in Ohio that banned abortion as soon as fetal cardiac activity could be detected. So they call it the heartbeat ban. Um, But that is at a very early point in pregnancy, about six weeks of pregnancy. And that law had not been enforced. It had never gone into effect, even though it was passed back in 2019, because there was an immediate legal challenge to that law. And that law was found to be unconstitutional under the 
the Roe v. Wade and, and subsequent cases out of the Supreme Court that made it very clear that because abortion was protected up to the point of what's called fetal viability, which is like around 24 weeks of pregnancy, that that law could not go into effect. But then the day that the Dobbs decision came down, actually, the federal judge lifted the um, the ruling that was blocking that law from going into effect. And so the by the very next day, abortion was banned after six weeks of pregnancy in Ohio, roughly six weeks of pregnancy. So that remains the case today as, as we sit here and talk. Um, that law has an exception only to uh, protect the, the life of the patient or um, the for essentially for serious health risks to the patient, very serious health risks and not mental health risks. They're, they're explicitly not included in that exception. So it has been a really significant change in Ohio because before that abortion was actually legal and accessible up to 22 weeks of pregnancy in Ohio. So there are exceptions for potentially life-threatening situations. There are. Um, so it, so if a patient is is having a medical condition that would um, require an abortion to save that person's life, or there's a somewhat less clearly worded exception for health risks. And there's been a lot of controversy about that recently because physicians have been coming out and saying, we're not quite sure what falls into this category. So the exception is again, to save the life of the patient, or I can even quote you the language it says to prevent a serious risk of a substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. <laughs> so that is that is really a mouthful. And um, there's been a lot of questioning and discussion around what exactly does that mean? And how is a doctor going to know whether, you know, let's say a patient has cancer, is pregnant, can't continue chemotherapy unless you know, they're not pregnant anymore, but, you know, it, the prognosis is not 100% clear. How does that apply in a real world on the ground situation? And and again, even though the law was passed in 2019, we didn't really have to figure that out because it hadn't gone into effect um, until June of 2022. So it almost seems like, Jesse, there are two tracks. There are women who are less than six weeks pregnant seeking abortion which is, as you mentioned, that is still legal in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And there are women who are more than six weeks or more pregnant in Ohio, which is now illegal. So what what happens for each tier, each each of the two? What are the options, so to say? What? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So that's exactly right. So for women who are less than six weeks pregnant, they can still seek an abortion in Ohio. That is still legal. There are still clinics providing those abortions. They have two options, which are they have the abortion using medications where there would be like no surgical intervention or they could have a surgical abortion. Some people kind of mistake this, by the way, or, or misunderstand this six week time limit. So the six weeks is actually because of the way that doctors have always figured out like the length of the pregnancy. The six weeks is actually from someone's last menstrual period and not some people think it's like from their first missed period or it's not even from when they conceived. It's six weeks. So it's actually two that usually happens about the last period is usually two weeks before conception. So the person is 
um, it's really about four weeks after conception has occurred. So um, the person has a fairly limited amount of time to get to a, a clinic. And I just want to emphasize that if, if um, as folks are sort of thinking about how this plays out, um, especially because in Ohio, you also have to go 24 hours in advance and um, have an ultrasound and do an informed consent process and things like that in Ohio, and then come back on a second day for a procedure. So those folks have to act very quickly. Um, sometimes the, the fetal cardiac activity occurs in between the first and second day. And so that can be an issue. And if that occurs, then the patient can't have the abortion. If someone is after six weeks of pregnancy, right, there, there are very limited exceptions, right, unless they are in some sort of serious health circumstances. So the options for those people would be to travel out of state to have an abortion. You know, some folks also are, in my understanding, are, are doing what we call self-managing their own abortions, where they are accessing medications, the medications that can cause abortions, either online or, or in some other way. And um, folks are known to be doing that as well. Or there are real concerns that folks might be sort of ending their own pregnancies in less uh, safe ways. But the other thing about travel out of state is that Right now, abortion is legal in some of the states surrounding Ohio. So you can access abortion in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, right now in Indiana, but only until September 15th, because there's a law that goes into effect on September 15th in Indiana that bans abortion completely, even, even before fetal cardiac activity. Abortion is not available in Kentucky as of this conversation closest state would be New York. New York. Yeah. From here. But, you know, Pennsylvania or New York. Yeah. Depending on where people are in Ohio In the western part of the state, I think people are going to Illinois if they're in the you know southwestern part of the state. And I guess the thing about this is also that this is just rapidly changing. It's really hard to keep track of. I mean, this is my area of expertise. And even I have to sort of check myself before I talk because I'm not sure um, that I'm always on top of the latest. It's it's constantly there. There are court cases pending. There are challenges happening in different states, is legislation being passed. So it's really like constantly changing day to day. And, and actually, there's a court case pending in Ohio, too. Um, that that may or may not change the status of the legality of abortion here. So this is a constantly changing thing. This must be incredibly confusing for women to figure out what choices they do have at this time. And we've also heard about trigger laws. Yeah. So the, the idea of a trigger law is that it's a law that was actually passed before this big Supreme Court decision, this Dobbs decision came down. And those laws said if and when Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, then immediately or within some set period of time, abortion becomes illegal in this state. And um, some states had passed those laws in preparation for uh, the Dobbs decision coming down. And some of those laws immediately went into effect on the day the Dobbs decision, some of those laws went into effect when the Dobbs decision came down. And then some courts later said, no, 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 you can't do that um, because they were challenged in court. Maybe they were written too vaguely or there were other problems with those laws. So, again, that's a that that has created a, a real mishmash in Ohio. We didn't have a trigger ban, although a lot of folks have been hearing this phrase and talking about it because actually the legislature had 
proposed one in Ohio, but just never passed it. So it it is not in effect in Ohio, but um, there are thoughts that a a total abortion ban might be passed in Ohio before the end of this year. So it's still sort of floating out there. It doesn't really matter if it's a quote unquote trigger law anymore because, you know, Dobbs has happened. So it doesn't need that like triggering event. But that law is still floating out there and could still get passed, in which case it would ban abortion in all circumstances. The other thing that people kind of talk about as trigger bans is and it it created a really another really interesting and, and difficult problem is that there were abortion bans that had been passed before Roe v. Wade that were from like the 19th century, sometimes on the books in some states. And Roe v. Wade, just when the Supreme Court decided that, all the states said, "Okay, we can't enforce those laws. So, you know, we're just going to act like they're not there. But they stayed there and they didn't repeal those laws. They left them on the books and just didn't enforce them. And so in some states, that's another thing that acts kind of like a trigger law. The state said, "Okay, we have no more Roe v. Wade. Now we can start enforcing this 19th century law. Right. And and that's another thing that's just sort of unprecedented you know, because we just we haven't had a legal situation like this before where such an, a major precedent was overturned and sort of overnight we were faced with all these questions of whether old laws can be enforced that haven't been enforced in 100 years and and or in 50 years anyway, and various other um, uh, sorts of questions like that. I'm really so glad to be having this conversation today, and I'm really so thankful that you are helping to clarify this for mm-hmm. us. So what happens if someone violates the law, like, and they assist a, per, a woman who is more than six weeks pregnant by either providing a ride? So for instance, if it's an Uber driver or, mm-hmm. you know, providing any assistance whatsoever, what, what happens to those of us who might be in this world? Yeah, thanks. So this is a little bit of a gray area too, but I, I want to say that, first of all, The general consensus seems to be, and I I think that's kind of how I have to talk about it because it's really hard to say anything is super clear right now, given, like I was just saying, we're just in this uncharted territory. The consensus seems to be that it's okay to help someone travel out of state to have an abortion. So if someone is assisting someone else to get to Pennsylvania or something like that, even if they're having an abortion after six weeks, that seems to be fine. We don't have really any precedent suggesting it's not. No one in Ohio, to my knowledge, none of the government officials are taking the position that that's a problem. Um, But if, say, you were in Ohio and you were helping someone access an abortion after six weeks or you were having an abortion after six weeks in violation of Ohio law, or you were performing that. Um, So there are felony criminal penalties associated with the law. So that means if for, say, the doctor, if there was a doctor performing that abortion, uh, the doctor could face a felony, which means prison time and fines. The doctor would also lose their medical license. The pregnant woman herself is not subject to any penalties under the law. The law explicitly says that, that the pregnant woman cannot be prosecuted. And then helpers could presumably be prosecuted under a kind of aiding and abetting uh, idea. So 
in Ohio, like I think in in most states or maybe every state, there's just a general law that says it's a crime to aid and abet crimes or to be complicit in crimes. If you help someone commit a crime, it's as if you're committing the crime and you can be prosecuted. So anyone who helps someone illegally access an abortion um, could also be prosecuted just the same kind of the same way the doctors could be or, or someone who performs one could be. So all of these things are still kind of in motion. Yeah. But, so but it's good to know that at, at this point, as of this conversation on August the 24th, the woman will not be penalized. However, That's right. Those who are assisting her may be especially the doctor. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that, like for this concept of aiding and abetting or helping someone commit a crime, I mean, you have to know that you're doing it and intend to do it. So if we're talking about things like Uber drivers or people who are, you know, I, I don't want to make people overly cautious about this. It has to have to kind of have an intent to help someone violate the law and not just sort of be an innocent bystander. But yeah, that's right. So right now, though, the 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 woman herself is not subject to prosecution. And that could change. I mean, the legislature could pass a new law, certainly. But like you said, as of today, um, there are no no penalties for that that person under the abortion law. Now, again, there's a little bit of a, a more complicated gray area potentially around if you're accessing, for example, medications in a way that's not legal, like medications that are not that you're not allowed to possess here or that, you know, th- things like that, like there could be other laws that apply. And so I don't want to give, you know, too much of a um, generalization about that, but, um, but the abortion laws themselves would not apply. So this puts doctors in kind of a unique position. How does this affect their ability to provide care? Right. I mean, I think it, it absolutely does. So one of the things that I think a lot of uh, uh, healthcare providers are talking about is that they feel sort of caught in between because on the one hand, if they are trying to help a patient who maybe they think would fall under that exception for, for life or health risks, you know, they could face a criminal penalty if they, a prosecutor disagrees that that was appropriate or if they are called to answer for that. And then on the other hand, though, if a provider, if a doctor, clinician doesn't provide medically necessary care to someone, don't forget there's malpractice and there's other sorts of lawsuits on the other side. So I think some healthcare providers really feel like they're caught in the middle of this dilemma because, you know, there's sort of risks on both sides if you don't navigate exactly the right course between them. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine being a, <laughs> a doctor today that is charged with helping. And, and you think that mm-hmm. it might just be a particular doctor, like, you know, the OBGYN or whatever. But right. that doesn't mean that a woman won't walk through the emergency room door. You know, yeah. you have to help make that decision then and there. So we That's applaud right. those healthcare professionals who are out there today <laughs> trying to navigate the situation. So you were talking about uh, travel, the states that you can go to, but we really didn't talk a little bit about privacy. I I remember listening to the news and social media about Facebook providing messaging to law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. So how does that play in? For those of us in Ohio, we're having conversations. Is is that a safe zone? Like, like, (laughs) right. You know, right. 
what does that mean for our privacy? What does that mean for, you know, um, our request as far as our social media, or our emails? What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, right. This is something that's gotten a lot of attention in the press, I feel like. And, you know, my take on this is that we always should be careful about that. Like, I think that we are all less aware of these privacy issues than we should be just sort of generally. So, yeah, like anything, like certainly any interactions with sort of social media, you know, using your cell phone, all of that is stuff that can be obtained by law enforcement. And people think about, you know, healthcare privacy and the HIPAA law and things like that. But um, those laws do have exceptions for law enforcement, for evidence of a crime. And so, you know, again, without getting too into the weeds of where they do and don't apply, I think people should be aware that all that information is potentially um, uh, able to be gotten by law enforcement. The way I think these cases are going to get prosecuted and are if, if they are prosecuted is not that, you know, that our government or our law enforcement are doing some kind of like constant monitoring of Facebook or, you know, period tracker apps or things like that. I think what happens is someone does something illegal, they like with any crime, and then they talk to someone else someone shares it with someone else. Maybe there's a, in this scenario, maybe there's a, a significant other, a, a spouse, a partner, a, you know, parent, a relative who's not happy about it, who disapproves of it, who's upset, who goes to law enforcement, reports it, and then all that evidence gets gathered. So, you know, I think that that's really, you know, I so I don't want to make people too paranoid to think that like everything you're doing is, is being tracked. I, I personally I have to say that when I learned about the period tracker apps, I was like, what? I think we're putting way too much information online sometimes. Calendar, right. Before, even before this decision came down by the Supreme Court, I believe that. <laughs> like I believe that we are having way too many conversations through our texts, through our social media. Apps and I think you know sometimes it's very good to have a face-to-face conversation and <laughs> right, right, right. Paper has its advantages too. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about the Women's Health Protection Act? What is the status of this act today? So um, that is a law that would, at the federal level. Um, sort of codify Roe v. Wade. Um, so, so put Roe v. Wade back into place, put it into federal law and provide, you know, um, broader protections for abortion rights. And if the federal government passed a law like that, then the, all the states would have to fall in line. So states couldn't make their own decisions anymore. They'd have to at least allow abortion to the extent that that law required. However, that law has passed the House at the federal level, but has not passed the Senate. And I think that the issue is that as long as the Senate, and again, we're talking about the U.S. Congress now, as long as the Senate has the filibuster, um, they can't get enough votes to pass that law. And so I think it's, its prospects of passing are not very good in the near future. Things could change with the next election if you know, Democrats win additional seats in the Senate. They would have to both win additional seats and have a majority that was willing to get rid of the filibuster and then pass that law. And then even if that did happen and and President Biden would sign it, then that law would 
almost certainly get challenged in court again. And that case would go back up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, it's it's one possibility for how things could really change nationwide in terms of access to abortion. But it's not one that I think, well, I guess, you know, like, I don't think it's one that's super likely to happen in the near future. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like um, this is going to be an ongoing legal battle for quite a number of years, um, just like it was before. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But when you were talking about um, the abortion pills and 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 birth control, well, you I don't think you mentioned birth control. Mm -hmm. But can you tell us, like, is there any current legislation that is on the books that might prevent folks from accessing the pills or using contraceptive here in Ohio? So, no, there's nothing in um, Ohio right now on the books that affects access to contraception um, of any kind. And some of the laws even, I think, explicitly make it clear that contraception is not to be affected by these abortion restrictions. However, there are some things, and this is kind of the next wave maybe of legislation that may or may not be happening here. There are some laws being considered in Ohio that would grant personhood starting at conception. So anything from a fertilized egg onward would be considered a person under Ohio law. And there are various versions of that floating around. Nothing has passed. Nothing has even really gotten close to passing so far in Ohio, but there are some forms of contraception that could be affected if that became a law because there are some forms of contraception that act after the egg has been fertilized, but before it implants, before there's a sort of an actual existing, what's medically considered a pregnancy, because that happens with some forms potentially of contraception, that those could be considered to be terminating the life of a person, essentially, if these laws were to pass. But as of now, like I said, none of those have passed. It is a real question, you know, after Dobbs and the Dobbs decision, whether states that might want to ban these forms of of contraception can do that. So that's a that's a question that was kind of left open by the Supreme Court. I mean, well, Justice Alito's opinion said that they were not um, that, that they were not saying anything about contraception, that that the right to access contraception is still intact. But I think we could see legal challenges to that now coming down the, the pike next. Since this is such um, evolving development, what should people do at this point? If someone is unsure about the information they are receiving, where can they go to get information on the latest changes? One resource that I would point people to is uh, a website, and the website is Abortion is Legal in Ohio. So that's kind of a mouthful, um, but I'll repeat it. It's abortion is legal in Ohio.com. And that website is kept pretty up to date with information about the status of abortion in Ohio, of abortion clinics, where it can or, or you know, where it can be accessed to what point in pregnancy and things like that. That is one place to look. There's also um, an organization called OPEN, the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network. And they have a website with a lot of information. It's a research organization. So they have a lot of research on the website and art journal articles and other sorts of things like that. But they also have a section on 
Post Row, Ohio, and what's going on in the surrounding states. And that website will tell you like what the status is in it's it's updated, I think, weekly on what's going on in, in states surrounding Ohio as well. You could access that at open open.osu.edu. So open.osu.edu. That's um, the the website is hosted out of Ohio State University. So um, that's another very reliable source of information. And I mean, I'm and I'm glad that you asked for that because there's a lot of um, you know misinformation, like you said, confusion. Just um, people don't know where to look. If you Google, you know, you you don't know how reliable just a Google search. Um, you know, will will be. And so um, I think it is really important that people look to trusted resources on this. And I'll just ask, since you are a professor at Case Western Reserve, are teachers allowed to continue to teach about this? Are you there? Yeah. Are guys still allowed to do research about this at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, yeah, and people have been, um, uh, discussing that question, we are, um, and we are, um, there are no restrictions currently in Ohio that would affect our ability to, to just teach or talk about it. Of course, we have the first amendment, which protects free speech. I mean, there's certainly is research that could be affected in terms of like medical research. If folks were doing studies and things like that, um, that would involve, patients having abortions, you know, something like that could be affected, but, but the sort of speech um, instruction talking is, is still protected, but you know, it's, it's a good question because there are states that are starting to um, pass laws that are trying to regulate even speech about abortion. And that that's another thing that could be kind of the next frontier. Well, we are facing libraries across the nation, including Euclid challenges on books. And of course we're still dealing with the whole conversational critical race theory and, you know, folks just exactly remove the facts um, from our shelves. So yeah. uh, I thought I better ask that question. <laughs> you are a professor. So it's, yeah. it's, it's good for us to know that not only as folks are facing tough decisions, um, you know, as they make these decisions carefully, you know, you guys as professors are thinking things through as well. So, yeah, yeah. And and there is, you know, there is reliable information out there to be had for sure. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us about this topic? I think that we kind of actually said this or touched on this, but just, you know, the I think something that was really interesting about the Dobbs decision is that the majority opinion um, overruling Roe v. Wade and really some of the arguments that Mississippi made in the case seem to suggest like that the the courts need to get out of the business of abortion rights and they need to stop making decisions in abortion cases and they they don't want to you know have to decide the constitutionality of abortion laws and so the idea was that if if we just sort of end Roe v. Wade and there's no constitutional right to abortion, then, you know, the courts will not be constantly having to decide these cases and and draw these sort of difficult lines. And I think, you know, I, I think we'll have to see how that plays out. It's just very ironic because I think at least in the short term, there's just no end of questions, right, coming up. And I think we're going to really see that. No end of questions and no end of lawsuits. Yeah, exactly. I can't imagine, you know, um, someone facing this choice and like you said if it's medically necessary 
Mm-hmm. And they may end up having to file a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll yeah, see though. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, like we were talking about, I mean, I'm someone who this is my area of expertise. I follow this stuff kind of for a living right? and I'm having trouble staying on top of it much more so now than than before the Dobbs decision. So, it, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of change and it's it's a lot of information. Um, and, and yeah, we'll just see. Yeah. Well, we are so appreciative that you talk with us today on our Checked Out podcast and We hope that this will provide a little bit of information. And again, we encourage those who are listening to please check out the websites that uh, Jesse mentioned um, for additional information, more current information. So thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And now the news you cannot use. Some librarians or other book lovers might be interested in this one. A bookshop on the resort island in the Maldives needs a barefoot bookseller. No shoes, no news is the island's motto, according to Alex McQueen, whose ultimate library runs the bookshop at the Soniva Fushi Resort on the remote island of Campanado in the Indian Ocean. Shoes are banned on the island and reading newspapers is frowned upon, according to theguardian.com. So the island resort seeks a bookseller to work on a one-year contract providing personalized recommendations to guests. The most recent bookseller said the biggest challenge was adjusting to the pace of the relaxed island life. No shoes was no big deal. What does a library for dogs look like? Well, if you are a woman in Tennessee, it is a box filled with sticks and toys. Twitter user Toby the dog shared a picture of a dog beside a box with such items in it, along with a sign saying, take one, leave one. Once the post became viral, the creator added a poo bag dispenser to the dog library. No word on a dog library in or near Euclid, but come into the library for plenty of books about dogs. Thanks for listening to Checked Out. We hope you will tune in next time. You can learn more about Euclid Public Library by stopping by or going to our website, euclidlibrary.org.